Hi and welcome to Terra.2's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, biodiversity, development, conservation and many more. Today's guest is Nemeka Ikeguno. Nemeka grew up in an agricultural family where he learned practical crops cultivation and livestock keeping firsthand as a kid. Nemeka wears several hats. He is the executive director of the Smallholders Foundation, which uses community radio to educate farmers. He has also founded Cold Hubs, which provides solar-powered cooling systems that help farmers in off-grid areas in Nigeria to maintain and extend the life of their harvest. He has received more than 23 awards during his professional and academic career, including an Ashoka Fellowship, Nigeria's Young Persons of the Year, and has been a Yara Prize laureate. I'm Keithi Manyan, and I'll be your host for today. Hi, Nimika. Welcome to our show. We're truly honored to have you with us. I'm going to get started by asking you this. Can you take us through your career arc? Was there a defining moment in your journey towards a more coherent understanding of food security and sustainability? Thank you very much for having me, and thank you very much for the question. My career started uh, about 18 years ago when I founded the Smallholders Foundation. It started actually in 2002, but the organization was formally registered in 2003. The organization was born out from uh, growing up in an agricultural family where I grew up working in the farms with my parents, and we never had a television, but always listened to radio, basically BBC and VOA every time. And I got fascinated by radio, and I wanted to be a radio journalist as a kid. In 2003, I founded Smallholders Foundation as a non-profit that uses radio to educate, inform, and improve the livelihood of uh, smallholder farmers. Prior to the foundation of the organization, I studied history and international studies at Imo State University. Because in as much as I had an agricultural upbringing, I didn't want to be associated with agriculture because I, as a child, felt that the poverty being experienced in my family then was as a result of my parents' agricultural practice and agriculture as their occupation. So I didn't want to be associated with agriculture, but I wanted to be a journalist, you know. So I wrote to university entrance twice to study journalism. I didn't make it to the cutoff point, and I ended up studying history. And after studying history, I went out to work with an NGO as part of my national youth service, which lasts for one year. And my job, basically, as a HIV AIDS, to educate rural population on prevention of HIV and AIDS. So I spent time with rural populations from one village to another village, in Akwaibom state, which was not very far from my state. And I never talked to them about health. When I sit down with them at their village squares, we actually talk about agriculture. We spent time, hours talking about agriculture, and I became an agricultural extension officer instead of a health extension officer. At the point, the lady who was uh, running the non-governmental organization noticed my deep knowledge of agriculture, deep knowledge around crops, and deep knowledge around 
livestock management. And she advised me to do something about it that uh, she can see that I'm very passionate about it. So in 2002, I started the process of smallholder foundation. And in 2003, it was formally registered. Now, you know, the goal of the foundation was basically to use radio to educate farmers all across Nigeria. But it was very difficult to get funding to build a radio station. Uh, I was only able to raise funding in 2007 through the UNESCO International Program for the Development of Communication. And that funding was basically to build our smallholder farmers rural radio, a community radio station that does 10 hours agriculture, uh, environment, and social development programs in the local Igbo language reaching about 250,000 listeners in three local government areas of Imo states in the southeast of Nigeria. With that minimal success, the farm radio is now positioning to go to scale to reach about 4.5 million people in this state. So it's been a career filled with a lot of success and also a lot of failures, yes. I find it very interesting. You started off saying that my interest was not in looking at agriculture as something I wanted to follow and eventually came full circle. And you've come to the part where you said, okay, agriculture is where I want to be and I want to use radio as a means. I was looking at what you were saying and what have been saying in the past. And one of the things you mentioned, you talked about communication, education, public awareness being fundamental to persuade decision makers and the public to take action on conservation. In talking about this, I want to get started with Smallholders Foundation before I talk about Cold Hubs and the work you do there. So can you give us some general examples of the challenges faced by farmers in your region? I know this is kind of very broad, but it will actually help in giving our listeners an understanding of what is happening there. I think the key challenge of farmers in our region is lack of access to education that should improve skills and knowledge. Education is a key element that opens the mind and motivates the quest for results. You see, an educated person will make a better choice, more than an uneducated person. And there is that appetite to always look for more information is educated. Right now, farmers in our region are practicing smallholder agriculture, which is number one, very small commercial, number two, not so sustainable, and number three, it's a poverty entrapment where a farmer grow has been growing cassava for more than 10 years. And the market trend shows that the price of cassava has never increased more than 1%. So when I sit down with farmers and we analyze market prices over five years, I ask them, why do you continue cultivating this particular crop, showing that you are not making more money? There is that belief that agriculture is traditional, which is true. But what we are trying to do is to change the mindset using education for them to start seeing agriculture too as a business. So that mindset is the entrapment where farmers find themselves. Now, every other thing related to agriculture, which are the numerous challenges, access to seed, secured access to land, access to irrigation, all-season farming, access to transportation, market access, commodity prices. Every of those problems, for me, will continue to exist. But the biggest challenge is that 
it is actually the farmers who are going to change the status quo. They are going to redefine the practice once they are able to have as much knowledge as possible to change several of uh, these inherent problems. So for me, education comes first. And the other problems of land, transport, market, all come second. Education is the key. And then how did you help in resolving this? And then what role did your organization fixing things, so to speak? And as an organization, do you still continue to face the same challenges as before? Or has the nature of your problems changed over time? So how we fixed it was to sit down with farmers to design educational radio programs that not only informs, but educates, and not only educates, but must show that it will improve livelihood. In improving livelihood, we make sure that such educational programs are timely, relevant, and well-adapted. Over the past 13 years, we've done more than 3,500 radio shows on all topics you can imagine, from best practices in cultivating tomato, to tomato disease handling, to tomato markets access, to commodity prices of tomato over five to 10 years, We've done radio shows around livestock, goat keeping, cattle rearing, poultry keeping, best practices, how to identify key diseases, why you should start with the brood stock that is healthy so that it will give you the right returns. If you are going to do poultry for egg or for meat, you know, this is the right step to take. And we've gotten responses. And we've actually put our educational radio programs on other radio stations that have wider coverage because ours have a smaller coverage. So with that, we have been able to receive more than 100,000 responses in letters, in text messages, in physical visits to our outdoor demonstration days, to our extension visit days to villages, We've received more than 100,000 responses from farmers. Age-long practices and generational practices are very difficult to break. Think that over the past 13 years, we have been able to improve yield by 65% across board. And we think that has been translated to an increase in household income of between 40 to 50% for our listeners and also the farmers that we work directly with. That's excellent. I think this concept of trying to break a mindset or trying to change and let the mindset adapt to newer times is something that it weaves itself across lots of issues. And I think the work they are doing is really commendable. So one of your goals I read about was to produce a 20-episode radio serial drama about climate risk management. Have you managed to achieve that? And I'm just curious to know, that's all. We ran the first 20-episode radio serial drama on climate change management in 2010. It was across five southeastern states. Wow. The radio drama was in Igbo. It was broadcast in Igbo. And we think that it was listened to by close to 10 million people across these states. We built 95 radio drama listener groups. And these listener groups actually had a solar-powered radio and a mobile phone that they used to communicate to the studio after listening to every episode of the drama to ask the relevant questions 
Um, we have that open microphone time where listeners call in to ask questions. And we have two experts at studio. One is a climate change scientist, and the other one is an agricultural scientist who actually answer questions directly to all the farmers who are asking the questions. So between 2010 and now, 10 years has passed. We travel all across this region and this country, and we still see that most of the practices that we promoted over the radio, farmers imbibed those best practices, they've actually left them and they are going back to the former practices that we've been preaching against. So we think it's time to do a second round of our radio drama with lessons learned over these past 10 years to actually do another repeat of that radio drama series. I think that's an excellent initiative, especially because you say that people are reverting or going back to what was, and I think it's a great initiative. Good luck with that. Thank you. I'm going to move on to Cold Hubs now. So Cold Hubs won the MIT Star Award, and can you give us some insights into what place green energy innovations have in agricultural value chain? It activates infrastructure that is needed critically for agriculture to function. The green energy activates this infrastructure so that agriculture can actually start functioning. Because over the past years, there has not been any significant investment at the smallholder agriculture level. We have huge silos for storage of grains all across this country. Farmers don't go there to store their grains. They store their grains at their backyards. So what yeah. government does is actually government wants to do national grain reserve or national food reserve. They go and buy grain from farmers or excess farmers harvest and go and store in those silos. But those silos were actually designed that farmers walk to that place and actually pay a little bit of money to store their grain or whatever produce they have in those uh, storage warehouses. Products like Cold Hubs, what they do is that they bring that needed infrastructure at the smallholder farmer level or at the fisherman level. And that fisherman sees that infrastructure as a key element to support his or her business. That's what Cold Hubs does. And that's what green technologies are doing for agriculture. It is amazing. It is amazing what solar energy is doing in agriculture all across Africa. I've seen farmers who never had irrigation buy a little solar panel and buy a little pump, and they do a pay-as-you-go model, and suddenly they can pump water. Pumping water sounds very easy, but pumping water is actually that in very dry north of Nigeria, where you have almost six months of dryness, you can actually grow food. So you are not growing food only for the rainy season. You are actually growing food for the 12 months of the year. That six months of new food being grown adds a new income for the farmer. And that new income he can use to solve additional problems like renting tractors or even renting space in our code room. And this leads into my next question really well, because I'm interested in talking about food security. And I personally feel that it will become a huge issue for the future if it isn't already in some parts of the world. Like almost 8% of the population in Nigeria was found to be undernourished. And this is in 2015, according to the World Bank's uh, development indicators. 
What role do you think your organization has played in addressing this? And what more can and should be done? I think for Cold Hubs, particularly, what Cold Hubs is doing is a key to food security because for me, food storage means food security. If you cannot store food, you can be secured with food, just like every other aspect of life. If you cannot save for the rainy day, when the rainy day comes, I mean, that person will find life pretty difficult. So food security is related to food storage. And what Cold Hub does actually is to provide storage, solar-powered cooling services based on a pay-as-you-go model to smallholder farmers, retailers, and wholesalers to store their food as long as possible. For more than 21 days, you can actually store tomatoes, you can actually store green pepper, green beans, watermelon, strawberry, cucumber, carrots, lettuce inside the cold room. No discoloration, same water content, it remains fresh until the farmer, the wholesaler, or the retailer decides to pick up the produce and sell in the open market until he or she is comfortable with the price being offered. So at that point in time, we are actually guaranteeing food security. At the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic, Nigerians suddenly realized the need for cold storage at key points within the food value chain, at food production centers, on the road, and at food consumption centers that can hold food for a significant amount of time. And on, at that place, we can actually come and pick up a little bit of food to supply the population. And that's what Cold Hubs is doing, which I think is very critical to achieve food security. I see what you're saying is basically providing a valuable utility for farmers, especially in times like when the COVID crisis is on. So to understand value is really, really great. Which leads into my next question. What role does politics and policy play in the development of innovation? Can you tell us more about what the government needs to do to help you and others like you? I think the government should really support startups and innovative companies by opening windows where innovative individuals and companies can attract a little bit of funding to build their prototypes. The very difficult part of building Smallholders Foundation and Rural Radio and Code Hubs was prototyping. Once you have a prototype on ground, people start believing that it is possible. Without a proof of concept, no commercial investor is going to invest. You have banks, impact investors, venture philanthropies that have a lot of money, but they are not investing in risks. They don't want the risk. So that is where government and policy comes in place. Government and policy should really think about that very fundamental early stage. That early stage is building a prototype testing that prototype, refining that prototype, and now having a real minimum viable product or a proof of concept. That is where government should come to support startups, innovative companies, and innovative individuals. So it sounds to me like social entrepreneurship is very, very hard. I'm sure all of what you have talked about sounds like it's been really, really hard to get your message and the work that you're putting in is really showing because 
it has been a hard slog, so to speak. So what advice then would you give to young people who are trying to establish themselves in the clean tech sector, for instance? I'll tell young people who want to step into social entrepreneurship to just jump into it. Jump into it. Don't waste time. You know, those challenges and risks along the road only makes you strong. It only pushes you and stretches your intellectual ability and your perseverance. But, you know, once you've decided and signed up to social entrepreneurship, you should actually realize that hard work and determination and also commitment is what will make you successful. Those failures, those closed windows doesn't describe who you are. It doesn't describe your idea. It doesn't describe your innovation. It's just that at that moment, you may not be fit for the program or for the competition or for the business plan challenge. But there are several other opportunities that windows we keep on opening. So far, you have a good idea. Don't relent. Jump into it. Tell people as much as possible. Shout on top of your voice. One day you will be heard and you can be able to create it. Moving on from this, can you give us a general idea of how climate change is perceived in Nigeria? Is this something that is fully understood or are extreme weather events seen very much in isolation? It's still something that has not been understood very well. There are 200 million Nigerians and I can say that only about 1% actually understands the impact of climate change overall. We just started having our rains in May. This is June, actually. We had a heavy rain yesterday, and it's very late. And do you know, over the past five years, the rain has been late. It has been late. It should actually start by the second or third week of February. By that first rain that happens by the second or third week of February, that is when we clear the forest and start preparing the soil. Before we finish preparation of the soil, intensity of the rain has increased in March, and we start planting very late March. Harvesting of maize and vegetable like pumpkins, amarantha leaves, palive and so on starts around April. But now we are having the rain, you see? So there is this prolonged dry season and it keeps on pushing back. Probably in 2021, the rains will start around June. Then we have a very short rain season. It starts in May, August, it will stop. Stay for about three weeks. Then September, it will not be very heavy anymore. It can be once in a week, twice in a week, as the case may be. So these are very key elements and indices that shows that truly, 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 the climate is changing. We are in a traditional society where people have religious or superstitious beliefs over several things. In the course of doing climate change radio programs, I asked smallholder farmers and also several other spectators what they think is going on. And people attribute it to witchcraft. It's shocking. That is some plan by it my neighbor to make sure that my crops don't do well. It's really funny. The science is true. And a detailed analysis will actually prove that the science is true. But there has not been that ability to communicate that science effectively so that people can understand the science. And that is the missing middle there. There has to be more education, 
that breaks down the science to the understanding of the rural dwell population and also the urban population too. My question then is, do you see this as a role of a government or do you see this as a role of non-governmental organizations or both working together to disseminate this information? Because the way I see it, if science is the hurdle, then it needs to be cleared in such a way that people are fully aware of the implications. Because what you're telling me about what the monsoons are is exactly that. It has implications in agriculture, it has implications on food security, it has implications on water. All of these three things are very, very important for a population to survive. So who is dependent on that, that this information gets disseminated then? Of course, the government has a role to play, but I think civil society also has a, a role to play. I also think the corporate private sector has a role to play. So it's actually something that has to be a tripartite or quadruple arrangement where non-governmental organizations has a role governmental organization has a role, private sector has a role, and civil society like labor movement, pressure groups that are not non-governmental organization also have a role to play. Everyone has a role to play because it's just one climate, it's just one act. Yeah, absolutely. Do you personally have heroes in the climate movement, someone you look up to, for instance? Well, I really admire Jen Goodall, the chimpanzee lady. She talks a lot about climate. I also admire the British broadcaster, David Attenborough, whose voice captivates a listener and holds you to listen to him. I don't know how he does that, but he has an incredible captivating voice. I admire him because he has used the power of vision and media to talk about ads and climate. And it has shown those powerful visuals that has actually made people to start thinking otherwise. Yeah. I think two of them for yeah. now. Okay. Last three. Any last words for our listeners? To the listener, it is an honor for you to listen. And I'm very happy to share these insights and experiences. There's a lot of role for all of us to play. There is only one climate, only one earth only one planet. And I think everyone has a role to play, no matter how small. Small roles like recycling plastic or having one-use plastic are key roles. Roles like making sure that you go to the supermarket with the same bag so that you don't have to request for new packaging every time. Those little roles are actually what makes a difference because we are change agents ourselves. Thank you. Thank you so much for your fabulous insights, Nimeka. I think our listeners have learned a lot today about social entrepreneurship and the ground reality of being one. Thank you so much again. Thank you very much for having me.